All of the hymns that we've been singing this evening have in some measure reflected some of the truths that are contained in this passage that we're going to be considering this evening from Romans. As the Apostle Paul explains and opens up to us uh, this truth that there is a battle within every Christian. So Christ's Apostle Paul has explained how it is that a sinner is made right with God. The Lord Jesus has paid in full our debt of sin. He's borne sin's penalty as our substitute in his death on the cross. The blood of his all-sufficient sacrifice brings cleansing for every sin. And the work of Christ has been accepted by the Father. The Father's justice requires that the penalty for sin must be paid. And God the Father accepts that based upon what Christ has done for sinners. God's wrath and judgment has fallen on Jesus instead of us at the cross. And God declares that in Christ the sinner is justified. We stand before God with sins forgiven and clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's all been God's doing. And it's on account of what Christ has done. We're set free from the bondage of sin. We were once slaves to sin. It once ruled and mastered us in a way that we could never escape its grip. But now we are slaves to Christ. We once were condemned under the law of God because of our very many transgressions of his law. But we've been set free from those requirements of the law in terms of us having to keep the law ourselves to be made right with God, because we could never have done that in our sin. That was just impossible to us. But now we've been made right by means of our union with Christ. He's paid the penalty for our sin. He lived a perfectly holy and righteous life. And in our union with him, all of those things which are true of Christ, God now sees as true of us. It's a remarkable thing. And it's been truly wonderful to see these things laid out in God's Word the way we have. But there's a nagging problem in the mind of many Christians. If this is true of me, why do I keep on failing to live up to it the way I know I should? Why do I still struggle with sin the way that I do? If all of these truths that Paul has been talking about are true of me, and that's the issue which Paul will now address in the second half of chapter 7 of Romans. It's really important that we, that we understand these verses correctly. Now I need to say that you'd be able to listen to some preachers, some of whom will be very well known and are very well respected, and they will give you a different take on these verses. As far as I can tell, for the most part, uh, that understanding of these verses, which, which I've become absolutely convinced of, which I'm relaying to you this evening, these have, for the most part, been the majority view in the Reformed uh, wing of the church, if you like, but not necessarily uh, completely so. There are some who would hold that, as Paul talks about these things that he's going to talk about, 
he cannot possibly be talking about a Christian in these verses. Uh, more likely, they might suggest, this is the kind of turmoil that the soul goes through before you are saved. And the Christian's true experience begins in chapter 8. Well, I don't see that we can view that, these verses in that way. And so let's have a look and see. Let me encourage you to have those verses open in front of you. And we'll consider this passage under three headings. And the first is this. The battle within, Paul's experience, and mine. Or Paul's experience and yours. I believe that what we have here is Paul's personal testimony and experience as a Christian believer. Now, up to verse 13, if you were reading in Greek, you'd see that Paul is using the past tense. From verse 14 onwards, he uses the present tense in every single verse. Things which are his experience now, today, as he's writing the letter to the church in Rome. This inner conflict that he mentions in almost every verse is not something that features anywhere in those opening passages, those opening chapters, when he talks about the nature of sin and sinners. This kind of conflict within is not found there. There isn't the slightest hint that unbelievers go through this kind of inner turmoil over sin. And that's because they don't. Read again chapters 1 to 3. Read those stinging verses in the middle of chapter 3 which describe the heart and nature of a sinner. That kind of conflict that Paul is talking about here is not found there. Now perhaps that's a huge relief to, to some of you that this great quandary over the Christian struggle with sin actually is a mark of being a Christian because it's not found in unbelievers. It ought not to be a huge question mark which throws your profession of faith seriously into doubt. That's not what Paul is saying here. And we can consider a number of things that Paul says here. Unbelievers don't hate sin, as Paul mentions in verse 15. And unbelievers don't think that the law of God is good. Verse 16. For the very most part, sinners love their sin. And sinners hate the law of God. It's the other way around. They certainly don't think of, think of these things the way Paul is talking about them here. A very important statement there in the second half of verse 16. I agree with the law that it's good. Sinners don't talk like that. Unconverted men and women don't talk like that. One important function of the law of God in the Christian is to keep on exposing our sin in us. And we are able to acknowledge that that's what's happening. 
Neither does an unbeliever delight in the law of God. Verse 22, this is a believer speaking. Unbelievers don't give thanks to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25. This is a Christian man talking here. And then look at the very end of the chapter. So then, with, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That's not an unbeliever speaking. An unbeliever couldn't care less about the law of God, let alone want to serve it. Not in the way that Paul means. So this is Paul speaking as a Christian man and as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his personal experience and testimony right now as he writes this letter to Rome. And this is quite a unique passage of Scripture in one particular way. And that's how many times in this section Paul refers to himself. If you were to count up the number of times he uses the word I, me, my, 37. 37 times. Very unusual for the Apostle Paul to make such a concentrated reference to himself in such a short number of verses. You won't find that kind of thing anywhere else. But he finds he needs to do that as he unravels this dilemma which believers face day by day. This internal tug of war that all Christians, even New Testament apostles, know all about. This battle within was Paul's experience. This is his testimony. And it's here for our learning it's here for our encouragement. What it's certainly not here for is for us to throw up our hands in despair and say, well, if Paul couldn't do it, what's the chance for me? No, that's not Paul in, Paul's intention whatsoever. And that will come across very clearly as we continue through this letter. But one of the great things about the Word of God is that it's very realistic. And it confronts issues head on. It doesn't try to sweep under the carpet some of those difficult realities that all of us know and experience as Christian people. It's brought to, into the open and it's talked about openly and explained for us. So this battle within that Christian faces, that Christians face, this was Paul's battle. I'm absolutely sure it's your battle too. So what is this battle? Well, the second point is this. The battle within defined, because Paul is going to define it and explain it. The actual frustration which he's battling, uh, he, mentions, he mentions it in, him, in terms of an inner frustration four times. Verse 15, what I will to do, those things that I know I should be doing as a Christian that I do not practice. And those things which now, as a Christian man, I hate, those things which God hates, those things which God in his word, he shows me these are the things which God hates. And because he's a Christian man, Paul now hates them too. But he still finds himself doing them. And this awful frustration builds up within him. Verse 16, I do what I will not to do. Verse 18, to will 
to do these things is present with me. I know the things I ought to be doing as a Christian. I know the things I ought not to be doing as a Christian. But how to perform what is good, so often I do not find it within myself. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. Now, yes, he's basically saying the same thing over and over again. Because he's just unburdening his own heart and soul for us. And we can see, yeah, Paul, I'm, I'm with you in this. These are my struggles too. The evil, that's a strong word, isn't it? The evil I will not to do, that I practice. Paul discovers, even as an apostle of Christ, that there's a part of him that is this great contradiction on the inside. There's a sense in which even he finds it hard to understand. Verse 15. There's something deep within him which knows full well what God requires of him as a Christian. What it means to walk according to the law of God. That's the new man that he is in Christ. But again and again he finds that he cannot bring himself to do it. On the one hand, to do what he ought to do. And on the other, to keep himself from those things that a Christian should not do. He finds this great conflict and contradiction inside himself. But even though he finds it hard to accept and understand, Paul nevertheless has learned what it is that's going on inside himself. What it is that's going on inside you and me. There are two things at conflict within every Christian believer. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. They're the two things. God has done a spiritual work in Paul. It's a spiritual work God does in bringing us to faith in Christ, in bringing about that change within us, causing us to be born again, converted and saved. It's a spiritual work. In every sinner who's brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ and who are put right according to the law of God, justified before God, God has done a spiritual work in them. But the Christian remains carnal. And what Paul means by that is the fact that whilst we remain in this sinful and fallen world, we continue to understand and experience sinful and fallen things. And we have to struggle against them because we continue to live in fallen, sinful bodies. The flesh, these members, eyes, ears, hands, feet, mouth, tongue, there is still something of our old sinful nature remaining in these fleshly bodies. Even though God has done and is doing this great spiritual work within us. Now the phrase sold under sin causes some to think, well he must still be talking about being an unbeliever because that sounds an awful lot like still being a slave to sin. 
But we mustn't take that little phrase in isolation from everything else that Paul is saying here. This is Paul introducing a theme which he'll continue to expand and explain as he's going to show us that whilst this saving spiritual work of grace that takes place within the heart and within the mind of the Christian, sin remains in their body. They continue to be under the influence of sin. Our fleshly bodies are sold under sin and that will not change until we get to heaven. What's happened in the Christian is that a new power, Christ and his spirit, has taken hold of our heart and our mind and our will. And that now goes to war against our flesh, which still has these urges and tendencies towards sin. Look at how Paul explains it in verse 18. I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, in this fallen, sinful body that I still inhabit, nothing good dwells. Until we get to heaven, and we're going to conclude with that, until we get to heaven, there is this degree of disconnect between the spiritual reality of our being saved and the physical reality of living in a sinful body. There is this conflict within us. This sinful body which still responds to sinful impulses, sinful stimulus, sinful temptation. I can still feel the pull of those things. So there is this battle raging within me, says Paul at verse 20. There is this new me in Christ who knows that I must not do this sinful thing. But sin still dwells in this fleshly body and that's what's keeping me from behaving the way I know I should behave. He carries on that thought from verse 21. I find a law then that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And that's the result of that saving work that God's done within him. But I see another law in my members, in my body, warring against the law of my mind bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So there's this battle taking place and if I'm not careful, I can allow the sinful side of me to get the upper hand, but it needn't. But so often it does. That's how he concludes at the end of the chapter. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This battle constantly raging. I've got an illustration for you shortly. The law has done and is doing its work in Paul's life. The law of God has convicted him of his sin. The law of God has 
convicted him and convinced him of God's righteousness. The law of God has convicted him and convinced him of his need of salvation and that Christ is the only saviour. The law of God has done all of that. But this battle still goes on. Now, let's just consider a few verses that Paul says, says elsewhere in his writings, which actually help to flesh this out for us a little bit. Let's consider, first of all, something he says in the book of Galatians in chapter 5. And from verse 16, he says this, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because, you see, if you're careless as a Christian, if you drop your God, you most certainly can find yourself fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And so he brings this exhortation. No, walk in the Spirit. And he continues, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and it's the Spirit of God he's talking about there, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The Spirit of God goes to war against our sinful nature. The Spirit of God dwells in you now as a Christian, and he's gone to war. But your old sinful nature is not yet fully done away with, not yet. Not whilst you remain in this earthly, fleshly body. And it can put up quite a resistance. It's important to say this, sin no longer reigns in your life like it once did, but sin is still resident in your life. Paul says in verse 21, it is present with me. Sin no longer reigns, but it is still resident. Sin is no longer the domineering force in your life that it used to be. God's Spirit is, but sin is still present in you. And there is this battle that rages in every Christian. And much of Paul's exhortations are that as Christians, we engage in that battle against the flesh. Listen to him in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. This is a well-known saying of Paul's. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. He's writing to Christian believers. You need to actively, determinedly put those things away. They haven't just disappeared overnight, never to trouble you again. They still lurk within you. And with the Spirit's aid and with Christ's help, you must put them off. We've been delivered from the dominion of sin, but we've not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. And in the Spirit of God, we go to war against it. Ephesians 5, verse 3, he writes to Christians, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Why do Christians need to be warned against those kinds of things? Because in our fleshly state, it is still possible for us to be caught up in them. And so we must actively take steps not to let these things get the better of us. 
This has been the dilemma for God's people in every age. In the Old Testament, there were some faithful, faithful people. People who were commended for their faith. But Moses allowed his anger to get the better of him to the point where he killed a man. Samson couldn't control his sexual desires, but he's commended for his faith in Hebrews. Neither could David. And he committed adultery and then arranged for the husband of his mistress to be killed. Solomon was a serial polygamist, perhaps one of the worst the world has ever seen. Ananias and Sapphira lied in front of the whole church. The Corinthian church was struggling with all kinds of sins amongst its members. This has been the ongoing struggle for all who know and love God. Hence Paul's exhortation to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3. See, these are not isolated incidents. Colossians 3 verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Put it to death. And these thoughts, of course, link back to what Paul has already said in his letter, that there can be no excuse for any Christian to willfully continue in sin. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Absolutely not. You can be certain Paul is not giving you an excuse to throw in the towel and just go away and do whatever you want. Absolutely not. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, that's not how it is. We fight against sin. The Christian is to actively engage in this battle against sin. Here, perhaps, is one area where we do not pray enough for one another. Here, perhaps, is one area where it will be a great help to you to have however many trustworthy brothers or sisters in Christ that might help who you can take into your confidence on some of these issues as wise and faithful counsellors. Share with them your battle if you're really struggling, knowing that they will only love you and pray for you and support you. Perhaps you're someone who needs that right now. These are real battles that true Christians face. Here's one way to think about it which might help. It's probably a very crude illustration in many ways but maybe it'll help. Let me take you to a racetrack. And parked up in one of the garages is a battered old racing car that's been completely wrecked by vandals. They took that car out onto the track and they just thrashed it to death. They abused that car every which way they could. Any trained racing driver would have held up his hands in horror at how they were driving that car. They were doing everything wrong. And it's just a wreck in the corner. And one day, one of the instructors at the circuit decides that he is going to love and restore that car. He starts it up, it just about starts. He drives it out onto the track. It just about drives. 
and the expert takes that car around the track and he clocks the slowest time that circuit has ever seen. The driver knows exactly how to handle that car. He knows the perfect racing line round every inch of that circuit. But he's just clocked the slowest ever time. Why? Because although that car has the perfect new owner, although that car has the perfect new driver, the car itself simply is not up to the job. And this is what the driver does. He completes one lap and then he drives into the pit lane and the mechanics replace or repair one item on the car. And he drives out, he does one more lap, and he drives into the pit lane, and the mechanics replace or repair one item on the car. And he drives out and does one more lap. Returns to the pit lane, and, well, you get the picture. And round and round he goes. One lap, one pit stop at a time. It's the big obvious repairs to begin with. And once they're dealt with, the, the smaller, more subtle problems start to come to light. They need to be dealt with too. And what happens? Little by little, the lap times get quicker as the car is gradually improved. It's not without mishap. There are a few crashes along the way, as some of the old parts, which haven't yet been replaced, give way completely, and off the track it goes. But the driver persists. Progress is being made. And at every point, the driver of the car knows exactly what ought to be done where to break, now is the time to break, that's the line to take through the corner and so on. And at every point he knows exactly what ought to be done. But the car so often just isn't up to the job, it's not up to the task. Now it's a crude illustration but that kind of how it, that is kind of how it is for you as a Christian. There's been this dramatic change of ownership this dramatic change in governing power in your life and God in Christ by his spirit and through his word gets to work in you to change you but it's this lifelong process of sanctification with struggles aplenty along the way as every area of your life is brought into alignment with the word of God And this battle continues all the way through. It's the mark of being a Christian. That the Spirit of God is doing His work within you. The Word of God is doing its work within you. Conforming your, your thinking, conforming your desires, conforming your nature more and more in line with all of those things which please God. But you still have this fleshly battle with your body. And, and that's why 
Paul's letters are full of these exhortations for us to take up the fight. And here's the final thing about this battle within, and it's this, victory assured. Victory is assured. I want to just consider three simple but hugely important lessons to take from this passage. The first is that what Paul is describing here is the ongoing struggle of every Christian believer. If you've been sitting here this evening thinking to yourself, I haven't a clue what Paul is talking about here. I've never had that struggle. Not ever. Well, maybe you haven't had that saving work of grace in your life like Paul did. We need to remember that all of us are going through this battle. It's one of the reasons why we need to bear with one another. It's why we need to come together regularly like this, exercising God's means of grace. We need these things for us to grow. We need to get into that pit lane over and over and over again. In fact, it's almost like part of me is in the pit lane all the time as part of me is racing around the track. Secondly, you must give yourself to this battle. We've seen these exhortations of the Apostle. You've heard them before. Christians are not to be passive passengers, but to engage. The battle requires you to give yourself to it, putting off, putting on, remaining vigilant, remaining diligent. This is why the Apostle uses so many active analogies in his writings. Military were soldiers taking up the whole armour of God. Athletic were athletes keeping ourselves fit so that we can run the race. Manual labour, we are farmers tilling and ploughing and planting. We're to give ourselves to the battle. Thirdly, in answer to the question, how on earth can any of us be up to this? Well, that's the question Paul's asking. Who will ever deliver us from this, these bodies of death? What is the answer to this? Well, there is one answer. And this one is all you need. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the answer. He is the one who will see you through this battle. He it is who has broken sin's power and authority at the cross. His was the death which you died with him. His is the resurrection life of which you are now a partaker. He it is who now dwells within you by his spirit. His is the life which now is in you. He it is who is at the control of your life as you now wrestle against all indwelling sin. This is Christ at work within you. He it is, by his word, who will continue this work of sanctification that he's begun. He it is who will help and strengthen you with all the resources of heaven at his disposal. His is the payment for your sins and the righteousness which keeps you totally justified before God, despite all of these struggles. Even when you go skidding off the track, Still you are justified before God in Christ. He is the one who will continue to love you 
set you on your feet again. Such is his grace. He will never let go of you. And his love will keep you to the end. And there will be an ultimate victory for every Christian. There will be a day when this struggle is over and done. Just look ahead in your Bible into chapter 8. And let's read from verse 18. We'll consider this in more detail when we get there in our series, but let's read these words now. Chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Shall be. Future. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The redemption of your body. The day when that salvation which you have in Christ will become totally completed. And that presence of sin with which you still struggle will be gone. And it will be gone forever. And it will be gone for good. The day will dawn when you will finally be separated from the presence of sin. Right now, you have been set free from the dominion of sin. It does not rule you like it did but you do still struggle with the presence of sin. But that struggle will end on that great day when Christ returns and takes us into glory. You will forever be in the place where only righteousness dwells. And that will be your only experience for all of eternity in heaven with Christ and all the saints. The battle will be over. Until then, the exhortation of the scripture is to fight the good fight of faith, working out your salvation with fear and trembling in Christ Jesus, because it can't be done any other way. In Christ, take on the battle putting off sin, putting on everything that is good and wholesome and godly and Christ-like, praying for one another that we make progress every day, every week, every month, every year. To put it crudely, the lap times are getting faster and faster. We'll never race the perfect lap. 
Not in this sinful world. But you will cross the finishing line to reach the other side. There to reign with Christ in perfect holiness and glory forever.